Good afternoon and welcome to Stories in Public Health. This is a podcast for new to the field or people who are aspiring to work in public health and I'm your host, Emily Dieter. And today I'm at Sydney University interviewing Associate Professor Anne Hust, who's an epidemiologist who heads the Cancer Epidemiology and Prevention Research Group at the University of Sydney. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So could you tell us a little bit about what your group does here at the university? Well, the title's quite explanatory. So we do uh, essentially cancer prevention research and cancer epidemiology. But actually, we do research across the whole of the cancer spectrum. So we do studies around survivorship as well, um, looking at risk factors for cancer, ways that we can improve identification of people at high risk, and health services research in, in the area of cancer. Yeah, so it's really covering a broad range. Yeah. Um, and what first got you interested, maybe we'll touch on this cancer specific, what first drew you to academia? Was it an accident? I know it was for me. Yeah, it's, um, so thinking back when I, I did a Bachelor of Arts, Bachelor of Science at university because I was interested in languages as well. And when I was looking for jobs, well, first I did a, a research scholarship, like summer vacation scholarship um, in my third year of physiology of the phys- like in science at the University of Queensland, I went to the perinatal research centre at the Royal Women's Hospital, and I ended up working on this research project in the neonatal intensive care unit. And from that, I got my first job, which was at the Centre for Perinatal Health Services Research, yeah, at the University of Sydney. So I sort of fell into research that way, and then while I was there, I did my MPH and. After a few years, I was working in perinatal research and clinical trials in the area of neonatal and perinatal research. I wanted to do my PhD and I thought I would switch to cancer, partly because you know, I had an interest in it from having family affected by cancer and also because it's a really diverse field so I thought I could really have a career in that area without ever getting bored. (laughs) That's very true. (laughs) (laughs) Because every cancer has its own you know etiology and management and there's yeah so many different risk factors and it just seemed like such an interesting area to work in and so I at that point I switched into cancer and then I've in my PhD I worked on endometrial cancer, which is like uterine cancer, and now I'm mainly working in skin cancer. Okay, and was it easier making that trans- transition because you did it so early within your PhD as opposed to you think it might be a bit harder to transition later? Yeah, I think I think it is. Um, well, being an epidemiologist, I mean, the core skills that you have really can translate into different areas. So I think it is possible to move around, but it, as a researcher going for grants and things it does rely on having often relies on you having a a track record in a particular area and so it can be quite useful to to be within the one field but I think really it's about the skills of an epidemiologist and I think they're quite translatable so I don't think you have to I don't think you have to stick to one particular area and for example in my when I was doing my postdoc I I particularly wanted um, expertise around genetic epidemiology and so I that's when I moved into skin cancer because I wanted to get some expertise in that type of epidemiology yeah so I mean you just learn the new content area don't you and then adapt
Yeah. And how did you find it post-PhD? Did you have a firm idea of where you wanted to go and what you wanted to do? Uh, not really, except, yeah, except I, I knew I wanted to learn a bit more about genetic epidemiology because I knew that it was it seemed to be an important aspect of cancer research and I didn't really have my head around it. So I just asked around for what opportunities there were and, yeah, I ended up in Melbourne working on the Australian Melanin and the Family study. And what was that study doing? So that was a study that had been run over about six years and it, it was funded by NHMRC. It was a case control study of melanoma looking at people who developed melanoma before the age of 40 and it recruited um, their family members as well so it was looking at risk factors for early onset melanoma and essentially had um, been run across the east coast of Australia and had been completed but had run out of money and was just sort of sitting there unloved and um, so it was a great opportunity for me to yeah get to work on that project and yeah. and how how common is it is early onset melanoma? Uh, well, melanoma is it's the third most common cancer in Australia, but it actually uh, more so than other cancers influence um, affects younger people. So yeah. it's the most common cancer in young adults in Australia. It, yeah, it, it does affect a lot of young people. And what are some of the risk factors? That, what did you find from that study? Sorry, it was a while ago now. I'm testing yeah, your no, brain. Right. I'm still, just really interested. I still, I still use the study. It contributes to a melanoma consortium that I'm part of, so we're still, um, we're still using the data from that study. Uh, well, we found, actually, one of the interesting things we found from that study was when we looked at sunbeds as a risk factor for melanoma, we found that um, sunbed use was a strong risk factor and particularly for younger people. So the younger you start using them, the stronger a risk factor it is. And so actually it was a really important finding that helped lead to the sunbed ban in Australia. And so that research got quoted in, in the um, policy documents and so forth. So that was a really uh, exciting thing to happen from that. But we also, we also demonstrated that sunscreen was um, very protective of melanoma and we looked at lots of different genetic risk factors. So it's contributed to finding out new genes that are related to melanoma development. Okay, and then what happens, sorry, excuse my ignorance in this area. I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist. So what happens once we know about the genes? Are we able to, is, does that affect treatment plans or? Yeah, so a lot of the work we're doing here is in is applying that knowledge to to try to find new ways to prevent and manage the disease. So one of the studies we're doing is to give information about people's uh, melanoma risk, their genetic risk of melanoma, and to see if getting that information influences um, their sun protection behaviours and great. sun exposure. So it also influences their skin checks. So we're doing a study at the moment which is funded by NHMRC where we recruited a thousand people across Australia and we randomised them to either just receive general information about skin cancer prevention or to get that information of, along with their personalised gene genetic risk of melanoma and a phone, like they get that with, in a personalised booklet and a phone call from a genetic counsellor. So 
they're looking to see what the impact of that information is. Yeah, but no findings yet? No, we've, we did a pilot study which was uh, suggestive that we might see some um, impacts on, on reducing sun exposure and improving sun protection behaviours, but we're really waiting for the results of the big study. Oh, that's so exciting. That. I can't wait to hear about it. I mean, it's awful that we have to research these kind of things, but that's really interesting and so impactful. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's fun and we're looking forward to finding out yeah, what the answers are. And um, yeah, we're collecting the sun exposure information through um, an objective dosimeter. It's a bit like wearing a watch and so it objectively captures the amount of sun that people are getting. Oh, like a Fitbit for sun. Yeah. That's great. So we, we send them, we mail them out all over Australia. And How do you know if people are wearing them? Does it tell you? Yeah, so we, can, we download the data and you can see, you can see the data um, and we know what looks unusual and we'll follow up anything that looks unusual if it looks like it hasn't been worn. Yeah. Oh, that sounds so innovative. Yeah. Yeah, my boss would be really interested at the Australian yeah. Health Innovation. <laughs> they love wearables over there. Yeah. <laughs> And what are some of the other projects working at the moment? Anything you're really enthusiastic about? Sorry, um, all of it you're clearly enthusiastic yeah. about. We've got a lot of things going on at the moment. So today, half the team is uh, at, at one of the primary schools in Sydney. Um, we're implementing a, like a Sun Smart education program, uh, talking to the kids about sun protection and sun exposure, and we use those same devices um, to measure the how much sun they're getting around at different parts of the school and how much sun they get in the sunlight, um, in the shade, and with different forms of sun protection on top. So, and then we print the graphs out and have a look at what the UV index is in those parts of the school yard and talk about what it means. And um, we do a before after survey to see what they've learned from yeah. the session. Have you done that before or is this the first time you're running that? This is actually the last day that we're running that program. So we would have gone to five different schools running across several classes within the schools. And so have you found what's happened in the previous schools up until now or is that still being analysed? Yeah, so we're just analysing the data now. So that'll be interesting to see. That will be. Especially when you're little, you're not really thinking about risk about things. Yeah, so a lot of people... Yeah, we talk to them about what are the risk factors for skin cancer and slip flop slap. So this is a general question. Sorry, I'm just absolutely fascinated by this. I'm really like mm. want to change my careers right now, but hopefully <laughs> my bosses are listening. Is there evidence that shows that educational campaigns on their own work for skin cancer prevention? Yeah, some educational campaigns um, do seem to work, and uh, childhood is a time in particular that some protection is really important so we're trying to see you know if we can make a difference in primary school kids but the real trick is what to do with high school Mm. children the melanoma institute australia which um, we're affiliated with i'm involved with them with a a lot of the research there they they have a new education program with high school kids that teaches them presentation skills at the same time as teaching them about melanoma and skin cancer and sun protection and then they use those presentation skills to do a presentation to their classmates so it's yeah that's been really positive experience and they're rolling that out they're trying to roll that out across Australia so that would be really beneficial and so is the is it mandatory or do people have to sign up 
for students? I'm just wondering about teenagers getting them involved in it's something. It's not mandatory yet, but I think the hope is that maybe it will, um, you know, get included in the curriculum. Yeah. yeah. It's great about presentation skills because I even find that sometimes in my lectures that even people at uni are really uncomfortable with it. Yeah. And it's really good to practice. Yeah. Everyone needs good practice. Yeah. <laughs> it just gets easier with time. Yeah. I'm kind of torn about whether to ask about one more aspect of your research here and then I'll ask some other questions. Okay, yeah, sure. I can. Um, I might tell you about some of the research that we're doing with, with my colleagues at the Melanoma Institute. So one of my areas of research is around improving risk prediction. So looking at how do you identify someone who's at higher risk of melanoma and working out what the best way to manage their risk is. So one of the projects we're doing is to implement... So um, over the past few years, I've been involved in research that's involved better predicts people with melanoma by developing risk prediction models. So it's basically rather than just using one or two different risk factors, you combine them into one single risk model and you can give it an actual you know, percentage of what your lifetime risk of melanoma would be based on your age and where you live and then your, all your risk factors. So um, we're implementing this at the Melanoma Institute Australia and then at um, some other dermatology clinics in Sydney to better estimate people's risk of getting melanoma and then tailoring their follow-up, their surveillance, their skin checks according to what their risk level is and giving just better communication about that. So people with very high um, risk of getting a melanoma will come more frequently to the clinics and be told you know, how to check their skin and people at lower risk can be sort of reassured and they can come less frequently. So it's making better use of the clinic space and being more, making sure that people get the care that's more appropriately tailored to their risk. Yeah. So and what's the recommendations at the moment? Is it just blanket that we're supposed to get it yearly? There's no melanoma screening program that's across the whole population. What the recommendations suggest is that you your um, skin checks are tailored to your risk, but they don't really give specific advice about how that should be done. So for example, GPs are told to assess people's risk and if they're high risk, then they should consider sort of maybe annual skin checks. But it's not really, there's no good way of assessing people's risk and so it's not really implemented systematically and so what we're trying to do is have more of a systematic way of assessing risk incorporating information about lots of different risk factors not just one or two and then giving that information to people so that they're more empowered with that information and can act on it more appropriately. Yeah. And then how do they access that information? Are you thinking for something like online, like with the heart disease things that you can go in and put in your risk? Would it be something like that where you could go online and check your risk? Yeah, so initially it will be uh, they'll fill out the information in the waiting room and then they'll um, be given the printout by um, a nurse or a doctor at the clinic at the time of their appointment. Yeah. And it'll be like a one-page printout with um, an, uh, an image that visually displays what their risk is and gives the information in words as well on what they can do to manage their risk. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. It's all really interesting. Yeah. And really, it's that kind of research you can see the direct impact. So that's really exciting. Yeah. 
so I might change that because I'm just conscious of time. You've mentioned before we started talking that you've done some work and you're going to do some more work overseas. And from your profile, it looks like you've got quite strong international collaborations. Mm -hmm. How did you go about building those collaborations? So part of it was self-directed. So when I did my PhD, uh, this is, you know, back from my having an interest in languages, I... I really wanted to spend some time overseas during my PhD and the sort of the premier institution in the world for cancer prevention and epidemiology research is the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is part of the World Health Organization and that's in Lyon in France. So I organized to do what's called a co-tutel, which is where you jointly enrolled in um, the doctoral degrees in your home country and in the French country. So I organised, pretty much organised that myself. Yeah, so very uh, self-driven. Yeah, yeah, so that was that was driven by me. Um, but subsequently, when I started working in the Australian Melanoma Family Study, that, was, that study was partly linked into the Melanoma Genetics Consortium called Genomel, and so I started going to the Genomel meetings, and from, from that I got involved in the analysis team and new grants and so forth. So that was just really being part of that study, got me involved in that. And then from that, oh, and then I've since then, my previous PhD supervisor invited me to participate in a different melanoma consortium called GEM, the GEM study. And then when he retired, I took over his position as the data custodian for that so part of it is being given opportunities from other people yeah I've heard that a um, few times yeah so definitely I've been given opportunities from people who believed in me I guess and so that's been really helpful and then and then from those connections I've been given other connection you know other opportunities so opportunities to contribute to international grants or new studies that are starting up some of those have occurred just through my connections, my existing connections. So, so kind of it sounds like a three prong, yeah, like a three prong approach, and then it snowballs. Yeah. So, part of it's a bit lucky, and part of it's self-driven, and yeah. Okay. No, that's all really good advice. I think it's just really useful for people to go out and talk to different people in their field, and I know it could be terrifying, but I think being in this podcast actually helped me hugely in learning how to just go and talk to different people yeah um, so no I think that's good advice I have also you know when I go overseas I I started where I where I had time I would add on like a side trip where I'd go and just visit someone um, in my field that was doing research that I was interested in you know just to say hello and see what they were doing so you know, just trying to increase your connections like that can be quite useful and increases your visibility a bit as well. Yeah. I don't think you give yourself enough credit. It sounds like a lot of self-direction <laughs> there. <laughs> and what do you think, what have you found to be some of the biggest challenges like post-PhD in making a, a life in academia? Yeah, I think, you know, the funding is difficult because you're constantly on, on short-term, well, I guess when you get a four-year fellowship, that feels like a long time, but um, you're only a couple of years in before you're starting mm. to think about the next one um, and you're constantly having to be productive like all the time you can't really have you know a year a bad year really yeah. you have to just be always thinking of the next yeah. thing 
so that can be you know a bit stressful I guess but I do it because I really enjoy it and you do get a lot of freedom and you know it's intellectually it's really stimulating yeah. and so I have a lot of you know I've just in I've got these backup plans in my head about you know what other things I could do if I don't get the next fellowship I'm sort of just happy with that. I can't see you needing those. <laughs> I'm glad you other people have backup plans as well. That I have that. I think you definitely need a backup plan. I mean, you just can't. Are yours realistic though? Because mine are like is like work at a cafe. Because I think that'd be really fun to talk to people all day. Oh yeah, no. I mean things like you know working at health departments. Okay. Cancer Institute, Cancer Council. So yours are realistic. You know, I I worked in clinical trials. Um, once upon a time so you know potentially I could go and work in pharma so yeah does that kind of ease some of that anxiety around the grants just having backup plans yeah that's really helpful and although I'd really miss it I think you know maybe I would have better work-life balance um, with a you know like more of a nine-to-five job but but for now I'm really enjoying what I'm doing and well I hope it keeps getting funded because it sounds like really important work yeah um, and do you have any sort of big lessons or things that you tell your younger self or people that are just starting out that you kind of wish I knew that at the beginning? Yeah, I try to um, – well, I think it depends what you want to do. I think it's good to think about where you want to be going in the future. So, you know, if I've got a – if I'm supervising a student who really wants to get a fellowship, then I'll make sure they understand, like, all the boxes that they're going to need to tick. And so um, it's not just about publishing papers – you know getting on committees and reviewing papers and you know it's ticking all the boxes mm, there are a lot of boxes yeah so really I try to find out what the person wants to get out of you know their studies or and get them to think strategically about what they need to do to get there so not everyone wants to get a fellowship and so you know but generally speaking I would encourage people to get out and make connections because networks are always good no matter what you're doing I think it's also nice to meet people that have similar interests (laughs) I find yeah well it's part of the fun of science too is hanging out with yeah like-minded people learning new things so yeah I encourage people to learn new things use their initiative make connections might need to be a bit brave to do some of those things I think they can do it. Yeah, I think I, you know, I try to tell people not to, you know, just to give it a go and don't worry if it's not perfect. Just, yeah. That's good advice. I think this this world does attract people who have that perfectionist uh, (laughs) tendency. It does. But you have to be practical as well. Yeah, that's really true. And do you have, just quickly before I ask about your favourite book, what about people who aren't quite so sure where they want to go? Do you have any sort of ideas for them? It's okay if you don't. Yeah, no, I I would just suggest um, talking to people. You know, most people are quite happy to talk about what they do, you know, and have a coffee with someone. So I would suggest that you, you know, you just go and chat to some people working in that area to see what's involved. And, And I would you know most people are quite happy to give you that time and if they're not then you know nothing's lost yeah you just go and chat to people and find out find out more information yeah i think that's good and uh, finally um i have sometimes i forget to warn people about this question but i have flagged it with you do you have a favorite book or favorite movie or something that's really inspired you or 
really challenged the way you've thought about things? Yeah. So I generally read when I'm on holiday. So the last book I read, which I really enjoyed, was um, Michelle Obama's. Oh my God, I'm reading it right now. Yeah. So obsessed. (laughs) I really, I really enjoyed that. I don't know if it's changed my life, but I guess it makes me think about, you know, there's a lot in there about values and passion and, and the realities of politics, which I found quite interesting. And my kids are really into the Avengers movies at the moment. And so actually, I really, when I watch movies, I like just switching off. Yeah, that's good. I've heard so many people say that. It's good (laughs) to know that it's important to switch off. Yeah, so I just, um, movies that make me laugh or adventure movies. I like this. And the Avengers, they have lots of strong female leads. I really like that. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been amazing. Thank uh, you. Thank so you much. for talking to me. Yeah. Um, and thank you, everyone, for listening to Stories in Public Health.